This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group, the global PR, content and business development specialist that builds a reputation and growth for companies in media, marketing, retail and technology. I'm Martin Lote, founder of Propeller and curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, we invite a business leader with something to say into our kennel for a chat. We ask them to dig up something a bit tasty for us to chew on. My guest today is Wayne Garvey, the president of international production at Sony Pictures Television. Having been at Sony for 10 years, he's in charge of all their TV production outside of the US, responsible for development, selling and production of global TV favourites such as The Crown, Sex Education and Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. He oversees around 16 production labels. Before joining Sony, Wayne was at another TV production house, All Three Media. And prior to that, he had a long spell at the BBC, where he was instrumental in the creation of the Saturday night juggernaut Strictly Come Dancing and hits such as Dragon's Den. And he oversaw Top of the Pops, Weakest Link and Question of Sport, to name a few. Although he's actually best known to me as the tall bloke in the peg leg trousers with the stupid dance style who I met at university in the last century. <laughs> Wayne, welcome to well, the I'm Dog sure, and Bone. I'm sure your listeners don't want to know what you're best remembered as. <laughs> no, we can save that until off air. <laughs> Have you been in a studio before? Have I been in a studio? <laughs> Not one this small. <laughs> no, no, sorry, yeah. We do what we can. Um... Anyway, Wayne, we, we know each other pretty well, but perhaps you could just kick off and tell us a little bit about your job at Sony and what you actually do. Um, well, you summed it up very well. Um, I, I oversee all our television output outside of the US and it's scripted and non-scripted programmes. Um, sometimes I get very involved in shows. Sometimes I just, you know, let really brilliant, talented people like Peter Morgan and Andy Harris run the crown. Um but I, I'm in a very lucky position where I, I have lots of balls that I juggle at any one time, and I'm quite good at that, I think, really. Um, but my job really is, uh, this sounds a bit of a hoary thing, cliche almost, but my job is to create an environment in which talented people can fulfil their potential. There you go. You can put that on a T-shirt, can you? I will put that on a T-shirt. And how did you get started in television? Because I think a lot of people listening to this will go, well, he's a, he's a giant, he's a god a in TV production. <laughs> How did you, you know, how did you get your first job? How did you get into well, this? Well, I, I, um, I was at university with you, and then uh, I went on to do a PhD, and um, I think that's in economic and social history. And I, I think I thought I might, might either go into politics or um, be an academic, and I think both of those jobs are very, very dull because they're just not particularly interesting i mean the academia there weren't any jobs anyway but you you have to do the same thing you've got to be a specialist in a very um narrow field and attention to detail has never been my strength and so i applied for uh, our industry i'm always saying to people it's always about failure and the reason i'm in telly is because of failure because i applied for what was then the bbc graduate training scheme one for radio and one for tv and i got the final interview for both and i thought well i'm going to get on one of these aren't i and i got neither I then worked for the BBC for 12 years in quite senior positions. I never met anyone who ever got through on that course. I don't know what happened to them. But as a result, I just I thought, well, I quite like this idea of TV or radio. And I started to apply for jobs. And I applied for a job as a sports researcher at Granada TV in Manchester. And I got it, even though my only real interest in sport at the time was football. And I had a wonderful three years doing that where I looked after um, Manchester United and Liverpool. It was Doug Leash and Ferguson. And um, if you're a football fan... 
time. It was un- un- unbelievable. But from there, I stayed at Granada for 10 years and worked through various departments on various kind of shows. And uh, and now I've just sort of stumbled into one job after another, really. How did you get the BBC job in the end? Well, I was I was after 10 years at Granada, I, I was a pretty good producer, actually. I was a pretty good uh, live producer, actually. Um, but um, I, I was also... I suppose I've always been interested in strategy, managing people and so on and so forth. So I applied for the job as Deputy Director of Broadcasting. Great job title. And then they, within six months or eight months, I think, they moved the director out and they made me Director of Broadcasting. And and so it was a sort of quite a senior job. I was effectively um, in my early 30s managing Granada, the French, you know, things and everything. I was responsible for uh, everything from the on-air look of the station to... um, uh, you know, like when World in Action fell flat, fell foul of something or, or whatever, I had to get involved with the. Right. Um, so it wasn't production as such; it was no, more sort of yeah, managing the franchises. And and because of that, I've just sort of and I've always found that my my tip I'd always give to young people in their career is always try to make that sort of slightly lurchy move sideways because you can you can carry on with the linear. I suppose structured your career, but I've always found it very interesting. I've done it a couple of times when I've gone and done something that took me out of my comfort zone, and because of that, I got to know a guy called Peter Salmon, who was director of programs at Granada, and then he got headhunted to the BBC to be uh, director of programs. And unbeknownst to me, because I, I went on holiday when the job got advertised, the BBC were looking for someone to run their BBC Manchester operation, and and I didn't know anything about it because I been on holiday in those days you went on holiday you you didn't know did you it was advertising the garden and in the end <laughs> peter had, they couldn't find anyone i mean most of my jobs i've got is because they couldn't find anyone so um peter suggested you should check this bloke out at granada he's and and that's how they got me and then and then when I, I got to the bbc and i it was a very different era to the bbc now a lot bigger and there was some amazingly experienced, talented people. And I, I was sort of like the junior head of... So I ran the Manchester bit, but they were like, poor Jackson who ran entertainment. as this giant. You know, he looked up to these people. And they are all fantastically welcoming to me. And uh, and over time, in the BBC, if you can walk, walk on two legs in a sort of fairly straight manner, you end up taking on more management responsibility because there aren't many people. There certainly weren't then. Many people who could manage people. So after a while, they asked me to oversee music entertainment. So that was Top of the Pops and later right. with Jules and Glastonbury, which I loved because I love music. And then they, they sort of, Paul left and they needed a head of entertainment and sort of, they probably they probably tried you. But uh, in, in the end, Yentob gave the job to me. And, um, and then we transformed BBC Entertainment because it, it was in a hole, actually. And then the teams put together new teams, recruited new people, and yeah, out of that came, came Strictly. So well, I'd like, yeah, like you to talk a bit about that, but I mean, just to let you know about being the second choice you you are actually the first choice for this podcast <laughs> what for today about yourself yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, tell me about how you got involved in getting strictly started because that's a fascinating well, story strictly is a great story actually and there's a lot of post rationalization of success and a lot of people have claimed the credit there's one person in particular but you're going to now as no well. no i don't because that that's the one the great thing about television is it's never one person it genuinely, there's always, there's a load of people involved. And Strictly came about because of this thing about failure again, actually, which was we were underperforming. We, It was a department that was making terrible shows, really. I mean, when I started, I remember one of the last, Alan Yentob and I walked down to the studio floor to see Jim Davidson's 
I think it was it give us a break or, or whatever. And it, I've yeah. never been in a more that you know it was just a really unhappy. It, you just knew it was not a good place, and uh, that was the last show. So I, I didn't have any responsibility for that, luckily. But there were lots of other shows that you'd just go really. And so I had to reinvent the department. I had to bring in people who wouldn't normally come. So we did we did all that. There's a very long story to that. But also there was a problem with Saturday Night Entertainment. The BBC just didn't have anything and. There was a, in fact, while we were making Strictly the first season, there was an article appeared somewhere, probably The Guardian, about who killed Saturday Night Television, which was quite oh, interesting. I, think I remember this. So, when was this then? Mid, sort of early 2000s? Yeah, early t- 2004. Right, okay. And um, we did some research. Myself and Jane Lush, who was a rather brilliant entertainment commissioner, uh, jo- jointly commissioned some research into audience patterns on Saturday Night. And it was brilliant because it was brilliant research that told you what you kind of instinctively knew which is the weekend for most people in britain actually starts at around about 5 30 on saturday night because saturday if you've got families you spend most of saturday doing all the things you couldn't do taking the kids to all the stuff that kids do on saturday but around about five o'clock 5 30 families have time when you know they, they come together and often uh Certainly at that time, 20-odd years ago, lots of families lived very close to grandparents. You know, m- most people don't move that much. So um, grandparents would come together, etc., etc. And there was a, a period when they would... And then what would happen is, I don't know, about 8 o'clock at night, either the children are either old and they go out, or the parents are young, you know, and they go out. And then the weekend, by the way, lasts till 6 o'clock on Sunday. Because at 6 o'clock on Sunday, everyone suddenly thinks, work... And you've got to put the kids to bed. The kids have got to do their homework and so you switch off. So the, the weekend really only lasts for about 24 hours. Right? Really? Even yeah. though Sunday evening drama at eight and nine yes, is Yes, but, but you're still your mindset is, and, and you don't come together as a family like that. You, you watch drama, yeah, after the kids have gone to bed and everything. But Saturday night. And also they wanted treats on Saturday night. You know, there's, there's a fantastic piece of research about, because we were, you know, what people were saying is there's nothing for us on Saturday night. And the most embarrassing thing about is about going into work on Monday and admitting you've stayed in and done nothing on Saturday night. So people were saying, we go and buy a couple of DVDs from Blockbuster, that's how long ago it was, and we get some of that Hagen dazs ice cream, some popcorn, we make a big thing, because then I can go into work and say, this is what we did. <laughs> right. And I think it was Pop Stars had just started. And what they liked about Pop Stars was that there was a voting element to it. This and was ITV. Yeah, and that was very... That was very insightful because right. there was a big argument at the BBC at the time. You can't ask with the BBC, you can't have viewers phoning a premium phone line because with the BBC, you, you can't oh, ask them to right. do that. that and we were going, actually, the mindset is not we can't do this as the BBC. The mindset is if I spend 10p on a phone call, that illustrates that this is not a waste of my Saturday night. I'm paying for something a bit extra. I'm more involved, etc. So we designed a show that was absolutely aimed at that fact how do you get the grandparents the parents and the kids involved the voting bit was very important and then we also thought about sporting events how you design it so it looks like a sporting show but the other thing that we did which was really essential was that the pop idol show had been famous for nasty nigel um nigel lithgow our oh, old yes. pal. yeah and we realized that we had to be all the criticism in strictly has to be constructive. So you might be a terrible dancer, Martin Lope, but we're not going to focus on the fact that you've, you're absolutely hopeless and knock you down. 
we're going to tell you how you could be better. And that was very essential to the sort of spirit and right. philosophy of Strictly. Really well thought through. No, thank you for that. See, there's a lot more goes into no, it than people pe think. People don't realise. They just think it's a few dancers and Bruce yeah, and a exactly. se sequined outfit. That, yeah. was, that was a great thing. Where we sold it to the control of BBC One. We sold it in a room. It was a wonderful woman called Lorraine Hegacy. Mm. And um, we basically got two dancers and we greased them up. I've never seen more greasy dancers in my life. And they, they, they were as close. Martin and I are very close to each other here. We could reach out and touch. And that's how close the dancers got to Lorraine. And I knew at that moment right. she was going to commission it. She had to. Yeah. She could almost smell the grease paint, yeah. So uh, come up to date a little bit more now. So in your current job, the, th yeah. the, the, the landscape's changed so much. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about how it works with... Uh, you produce internationally in several markets. How do you select and choose shows? How do you decide <laughs> who to sell them to? Um, what's the picture currently? Well, it is completely different. The world that I started out, and it's interesting, I started in entertainment, really. And, now, and when I started at Sony 10 years ago, around about, for argument's sake, 80% of our revenues were from non-scripted, you know, various shows. And we had more non-scripted companies around the world. It's now about 90% drama, because drama has exploded in the last 10 years. And we were one of the first companies to spot this. Uh, we had bought Left Bank, which is a company I'd set up with Andy at... At, at the BBC. Andy who? Andy Harris, sorry, right, who, yeah. who is the CEO of uh, Left Bank. We'd set the company up at BBC Worldwide and then 10 years ago we bought it when I arrived at Sony. And we then pivoted and since then we made a number of investments in drama because we could see that there was going to be this drama expansion. Um, but the creation of ideas is always very in interesting because, of course, it's always, in, in drama in particular, it's always about the script and it's about the writer and that's the essential thing. The Crown, I, I had a boss once who, who, um, I think, I don't think Pete Morgan will mind me saying this, who, who sort of suggested that perhaps there could be other people rather than Peter Morgan who could write The Crown. Hmm. And, and I had to point out to him very, you know, no, The Crown is, is Peter Morgan's vision of, 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 you know, this particular story he wants to tell. And the idea that you can just get Wayne Garvey off the street to write it is, is laughable, actually. So you're always looking for grade A talent. And, and, and particularly writing talent for So drama. for people who are not in, in the TV game, when you talk about a script, is it just literally the words the actors say or is it the kind of conception? Because when you watch The Crown, yeah. Yeah. and there's often these wonderful opening shots of a horse going across a moor or a car pulling into Buckingham Palace from behind or something, a real piece of directing yeah. uh, power... Is that in the script or is that up to the director of the episode to choose? A lot of it is like theatre, like plays and stuff. A lot of it will be in there, so it will be set here, etc. But yes, you want to work with directors. Pete is very heavily involved. He's a proper showrunner. So the difference between a showrunner and a scriptwriter is a scriptwriter writes the script, gives it to the... And the directors and the producers go off and make it. The showrunner, which is an American concept, yes. really, that's now over here, means that someone like Peter has written the original draft, and then he will tweak as he goes along. He, he writes to budget as well, of course, which which is very important. And he'll be in the edit afterwards. So it is very much his his vision. Um, and, that, and that's what the really great... Russell T. Davis is the same, and, you know, the really great writers have these, these particular visions, and it, you know... And they, sometimes they use other writers, by the way, to bounce off. Right, OK. And more in terms of the politics and economics now, who, who's holding the balance of power? Because obviously all the industry discussion is about the power of the yeah. streamers like Netflix and we've got Disney Plus and Apple TV and Amazon Prime and, and other yeah. players. 
How has that affected you, that, that move from the sort of traditional linear model to the explosion in, in streamers? Um, is, it, is it good news for you or is it just a pain trying to well, it's fit been, them all in? it's been absolutely brilliant news for us because we're making shows with such budgets and production values that, that we would... If we had made The Crown 20 years ago, it would not look like The Crown now. And that's only achievable because someone like Netflix has come in and, and has put, in some ways... Um, film style budgets together in, into these shows and if you watch The Crown every every episode is like a, a film actually the production values are, are incredible so that, that that has changed the economics of it completely um, and now uh, what, what's happened by the way is there's enormous inflationary costs across the piece there's so much television and particular drama being made around the world that wherever you go you'll have the same complaint which is we can't get the crews we can't get that if, if you if you're young children are looking for a career i'd say get into television or film because it's such an explosion and there's a shortage of of people in every kind of job we we had one we had one production i think last summer uh in, in, actually it was a very british scandal with claire foy and paul bettany yeah. and so it was probably longer than that it was probably about two years ago the, the head of production of the company's make it was terrified because she suddenly realised that all the people who organised the taxis, because you'd have to ferry people around, uh, particularly on location, were already booked up three or four months ahead because of the number of productions. So suddenly, at that level, you, you're, you're getting a talent shortage. So imagine what it's like with directors and producers and so on. But a lot of people um, will think that TV remains extremely hard and competitive to get into, so... How, how, what's the tip there for people who are trying to get in the industry who they must hit a certain qualifying bar, even though there's jobs for them when they get in? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think there's more... that There's less formal training than ever before. In the old days, BBC or, or like me at Granada, you went for a company, you had a permanent job. Now it's very much a freelance world. Right. But, it, but I think if you get your foot in the door, you can establish a rapport. Good people will find a way through, actually. It's a very... I think a very welcoming industry. Now there are some some evidence that not women aren't particularly treated as they should be, and I'm sure there's issues about other diversity and inclusion. We could be better at it, but overall, actually, it's a good industry to work in, and it gives people an opportunity. And I always say to young people, when they say to me, oh, "I want to get into telly." Well, what it, first of all, your ideas are your currency. That's the first thing, and then it is about networking. Um, and that's often difficult for people who come from disadvantaged backgrounds because they haven't had that, that skill set. But I think we're getting better at helping people to do that. And we are taking more, strangely enough, we were talking about this yesterday at Left Bank, about taking sort of, I suppose, risks or giving people opportunities early in their career than we normally do because you've, you've got to because there aren't, there aren't enough, simply aren't enough people. Around. Right, yeah. Well, I think we might actually take this opportunity because on the Dog and Bone podcast we have... People who know you or know our guests um, send in little audio questions oh, that yes. we compile. And I think we've got one coming up on the subject of diversity from uh, Claire Enders. So oh. Perhaps we could have that question. Dear Wayne, it's an honour to be asking you a question on this podcast. And I would like to ask you a question that has troubled us both for a long time. How is it possible to continue to increase diversity in all of the elements of the production industry? How is it possible for more voices and more interesting talent from around the UK to find their way into the television industry. And I'd love to have your thoughts on that coming out of the pandemic and looking ahead to the difficult conditions ahead. Thank you. 
Claire Enders, of course, was a recent guest on this podcast, the founder of Enders Analysis. So what do you make of her question? Well, it's something that the industry... I mean, I remember when I was director of broadcasting at Granada, which is 25 years ago, hosting uh, you know, seminars on diversity and increasing our diversity. Because actually... For the, and my approach to that was it makes good business sense because if you're, if you're not addressing that, you're cutting off a large part of your available audience. And what's disappointing is that we sit here 25 years later and the numbers of senior uh, people in British television, however you define British television, who come from ethnically diverse backgrounds is incredibly small. It's really disappointing, actually. But what can, what can you do? You're in power. Yeah. You, you could bring well, about we, schemes, hiring I, I, policies, well, we, training done, to do this. I t- the, the whole Black Lives Matter thing suddenly gave a real energy to the desire to change things, actually. And what was interesting as being part of a global studio was that was, of, you know, it started with a, an incident in America, but it spread very quickly to Britain. And, and Sony as a company became quite engaged with it because actually it was brilliantly junior members of staff who were just saying this isn't good enough what are we going to do about it so we actually put together quite a uh, a large diversity fund actually in the US and the UK in particular to launch some schemes I mean in fact so um, there's people now working on sex education we've seen who've come through that scheme we've got people at left bank pitches Uh, Bad Wolf our company in Wales who we acquired last year have a brilliant scheme of getting underprivileged children from the Welsh Valleys into production and actually coming back to my earlier point getting them to understand television of course is not just about actors and cameras and all that it's about accountants it's about lawyers it's a it's also you know it, it, it crosses everything so actually getting people to understand that that actually you don't you know you have to think you're going to be a cameraman or a director you know, to, to get into the industry, you can be an accountant or, or a lawyer. There's myriad paths in. So we get we are getting better at it. I think also what's happened is that you've seen the broadcasters have absolutely signed up to diversity targets and made them stick. So now when we, um, on all our, again, coming back to our shows, we, we, you know, depending on who the broadcaster is, there's always a discussion about what's the makeup of your your behind the scenes crew. And so it's not just about we we got better on screen portrayal. I think you've seen that in the advertising industry as well. But for me, the key thing is it's about power, always about power, and it's about behind the scenes. You know, get, getting that generation. We're not, we're really not there yet, and we've got a lot more work to do. When you say power, you mean. Response, people, yeah, people who can commission programs, people who make the decisions that really They're matter. still yeah. mainly white. Yeah, they're mainly class, white, middle class. I mean, in terms of female and male, we're very, very strong. Most of our major broadcasters actually are run by women mm. now, which is fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I speak as a bloke called White. Uh, when, I, when I first went for my job at uh, Granada, we had an HR person who, who became a good friend of mine. Who, who a few years later said, I didn't put you forward for the job interview. You know, I didn't shortlist you. It was a, um, another guy, a, a black producer, actually, who put me forward. And I said, well, why not? He said, well, Wayne. It's not really a sort of Granada name. You know, Wayne. <laughs> And um, you're living proof that I'm living proof boys that working class boys can, can, make it can, can, can do it. No, but there's not, there's not many people called Wayne in telly. 
No, no. Well, you've, you've, you've struck out there. Well done. <laughs> well done on that. But, I mean, actually, just think about it. You mentioned The Crown mm. um, and casting and on screen. How do you tackle that then? Because, you know, if you, if you cast a, a black or ethnic minority actor in, in The Crown in a period piece when they had little yeah. role in British government or the royal family at that time... Uh, is that possible you, or is no, that... You, I um, wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do it on The Crown because you're, you're, you're making something that's quite recent and historically kind of accurate. But we did do that at Anne Boleyn. So, in fact, that, that was my choice, really, that we went for an ethnically diverse Anne Boleyn. Right. And we had Jodie Turner-Smith, who, who did a pretty good job on it, who's a brilliant actress. And we did that because I, as a historian, I guess, believe that every generation reinterprets history. And I think these traditional roles, why shouldn't they be represented by people of colour? Um, and there's enough historical distance between that. I mean, we've been doing it in the theatre for, yeah. for, for decades. So, so what's the year sort of after which <laughs> oh, that God. you can't cast a black so they, actor as a that, member of the British royal family? That, that, well, it's not... Yeah, I mean, if you were doing... Well, you might, you might because you also make a point of it. I mean, if, if perhaps if we were doing a... A show about Winston Churchill in the would we cast a black Winston? We might do actually well, because would be it would be something. I mean, it's difficult move. because of his issues around his own um, views on race, etc. Um, I don't know. Right, I'm well, thought about that. You've, you've you know, put, that the, uh, about. put that in the ideas bucket yeah. for later. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network. Subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. And if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. Most recently, Netflix has seen a, a slight decline in its mm. audience, and it's even looking at taking advertising. Yeah. Does that mean the gravy train's coming to an end? No, I, I think here's, here's the... Netflix's growth is going to be international because it's already saturated the American market. You might argue the same in the UK. Most of its expensive original content is American. Frankly, they pay too much for American content. Uh, what's interesting is shows like Squid Game or I have a, a Nigerian producer we've got to deal with, Moa Abdu, who's, who's, who's an incredible woman. She's got a show that is a Nigerian show that has been in the top ten in the last two weeks around the world for Netflix. And in some territories, it's even been in like the top two. Ozark has been number one, by the way. Um, Netflix will look to commission more stuff internationally because you want that you you want to have local content in these markets um, to establish yourself in the market, and then you hope that some of them will become big global hits like Squid Games, the, the best right. example of that most recently. So I don't see them buying less programs because I think they've got to do that. I just think they'll be spending less money on some of those big tentpole shows. What we're moving to is an era where these, these streamers will you'll sell them a show and they'll buy it out. So in traditionally, you bought a drama, I'd sell you a drama, I'd sell a licence to ITV for a few years and I, my distributor would go around and get money in from the rest of the world and then we'd be earning off that show over many years. And what happens now is I go to you, you buy it for a streaming service, you, you allow me to have a production fee and you'll pay me what they call a premium, which accounts for the fact that we are never going to get those rights back. Right, okay. And the direction of travel is very much towards something that we call work for hire model, when in fact you're not even getting the premium. And that, the, the biggest single danger to the British production market, actually isn't so much about the cultural... I, I'm not really too bothered by that, because I think 
the BBC is always, unless the government screw it up, is going to be strong. ITV is pretty strong. The sense of place, though. We love dramas that are sort of set in yeah, but, cities but, but and Netflix, locations we Netflix know. Netflix and Amazon want British shows that do that because they want shows that, first of all, work for the domestic market in the UK. And actually, it's the, the Britishness of it which means they're so successful abroad. If we started trying to make, I don't know, um, CSI Bolton, um, it'd be disastrous because that just wouldn't say it's not authentic. It's the authenticity that works and turns these into. You're, you're telling me that, that that something set in the north with northern accents and and slang and references will yeah. sell in the states. Yeah, it will. Oh, by the way, they might sometimes subtitle it. But it'll sell. I subtitle it. What? I subtitle you, it. All right. Um, but if you look Anything at something... north of Watford, so I press I, that button. I remember an insight to this was one day when I was talking... I mean, she was my cast, head of casting in L.A. And she said the one person, the one actress... I, it was when I first met her, actually. She said, well, the one actress I want to get involved in is... is do you know her? Sarah Lancashire. I went, yeah, I went to her wedding. But uh, no, her husband, Peter, got me a job. I said, well, hold on a minute. I said, how do you know about Sarah? And she said, Happy Valley. Happy Valley's a wonderful, it's a brilliant show. People in America, and 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 of course, if you look at something like Mayor of Easttown, that is an American reinterpretation of of Happy Valley, isn't it? That's okay. someone looking at what Sally Wainwright does and, and does that. But these shows do sell internationally. I just did want to probe on one thing actually, because your job now is a very senior manager. You know, have you moved away from the production side? Is a lot more of your job management finance? Um, you were telling me before that you you know you, you've got to deal with the situation in Moscow for Sony, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mostly my job is I have a PNL, which I have, I have a five-year business plan or whatever three-year business plan, which I have to hit those numbers. That's ultimately how I get judged. It's whether am I delivering on my business plan. Um, but within that, I find um, and and I delegate most of it. You know, delegation is I think key. You can't. There are some people who like, but I just, that's not my mindset. And you won't get good people to work for you if you don't allow them the autonomy. But there are a couple of projects I do get involved in. So, for example, I, I have a bit, I have an annual busman's holiday to Manchester where I go and sit in the gallery for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Because I asked my friend Clarkson to do the show and I feel honour bound to make sure he's, 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 he's enjoying it. But really, so I can have a bit of a lot and I can keep my hand in. So I do a bit of that. Tell yeah. us how you got Clarkson back on to um, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. That was when it was being off air for a while. Yeah. Well, this is, this is, this is one of these rare stories where it sounds too good to be true, really. I, we own the rights to Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And Chris Tarrant had obviously done a terrific job for many years, but the show had been taken off air by ITV. They still have, they still have a lifetime right to the format. Okay. And I was racking my brains about what would you, how would you bring it up? For some reason, I was very obsessed with Bill Clinton doing the US version. I thought it needed someone of stature, right? And I, and, and I was just walking around with it. I don't know why I didn't think of it before. And I, somehow I, I went from Bill Clinton to Jeremy Clarkson. And I thought, I'd watch, who would I watch doing that show? And I thought, Clarkson. And he, of course, has just, he had just signed for Amazon. I think they'd done the first season of Grand Tour. And I I knew him. We'd worked together at the BBC and at BBC Worldwide, and uh, so I rang him up and said, "Look, I um, I've got an idea, but I don't want to tell you over the phone because you're going to laugh at me. But I want to come around and see." So he said, "Come around to the flat," and and I had this speech prepared, obviously about why he should do it. He should be on terrestrial television as well as on a streaming service. 
you know, all this, you know, millionaire, the strength of the show, etc. I was ready. I had my pitch. <laughs> and I went in and we sat down. And he said, what is it then? And I went, I want you to present who wants to be a millionaire. I'm in, he said. I was like, what? What do you mean? He said, well, don't you know I love quizzes? And I was like, no, I didn't know that. What, what do you mean? You love quizzes? Yeah, I love quizzes. And the ultimate quizzes, who wants me? I can't believe you've asked me. I was going, to which I went, well, I'm not sure you can do it. I'm not saying you... you I just want to discuss it. You just asked me. I said, you've got to prove to me you can do it first. And um, we have a production company in Ireland who I'd given the thing to, and, and Matthew, who's... Who, who runs it, came up with a very good, very good idea, which was ask the host as an extra lifeline. Right. And we, and we, um, so we, we flew some people over from Ireland because <laughs> you've you got to be there because we want to keep it quiet. Oh, and we I see. Flew you them in, a did a, in a little test. office in West London. Mm. We tested them. And as soon as he started, I thought, yeah, he's got it nailed. And then I rang ITV up, the, the, the commissioner of entertainment at the time. And I said to him, I want to talk about, who wants to be a Oh, no, we don't want to. No, we've that, we're not interested. We're not interested in a minute. I said, what if I had Jeremy Clarkson? Oh, what, 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 what? And then we sold it as the idea. Well, let's just try it out. Let's do it as a 20th anniversary. But if it works, great. If it doesn't, whatever. And uh, he's brilliant in it. He's absolutely brilliant in it. And it's completely revitalized the format. As a result of that, it's revitalized it in other countries as well, actually. And in fact, we've, we've got a spin-off show called Fastest Finger First, actually, which uh, Anita Rani is going to present, which is um, to find um, contestants for millionaires. So it's going really well. You mentioned Anita Rani. In fact, yep. she's got the next uh, what? question for you. Perhaps we could hear uh, a qu an audio question from Anita Rani, please. Hello, Wayne Garvey on a podcast. It's Anita Rani here. I've got a couple of questions for you, if I may. I would like to know something positive. We like positive stories, don't we? I want to know, you've met so many people in your career and you travel the globe and you have swanky dinners with all sorts. Somebody who has genuinely impressed you, and I mean properly impressed you, who has real talent, integrity, charisma, whatever it is, it takes to impress Wayne Garvey. Who have you met that, in your opinion, is the real deal? And one final question, if I may. A mistake. A mistake that you have made that you wished you'd have done something differently and maybe you've learned a great lesson um, from making that mistake. Thanks, Wayne. Bye. Well, we've got two questions there from Anita. Let's take them in turn. Who's yeah. impressed you and what God. mistake have you made? in? Business? I don't know. That's such a difficult question because I generally I mean I started in my in my career as a sports researcher and I spent quite a bit of time with Alex Ferguson who was very friendly to me and very kind to me right. and, and I, I found him very impressive then I worked with people like Bruce Forsyth who who would do a, a, an amazing stand-up routine before the recording of every Strictly and it felt a privilege having grown up with him like you would have done seeing that and then there's someone recently I've spent a lot of time with Joan Collins who impresses me because she's got this unbelievable voracious appetite for work. And I think that's the thing. It's, it's that sort of the drive that people have. And um, it, it's, it's quite amazing. I find it difficult to find one person. I'm, I'm just so lucky in my life. I sort of meet all these, touch all these people, and they're all quite extraordinary. Tell me what you're working on with Joan Collins. We are developing, we've developed for far too long, as Joan would say, and she's right, a, a 
a series about her and her sister, Joan and Jackie. Oh, right. And in fact, we've got a rather brilliant writer now attached to it who's written the first script and the outline. And as we speak, we are out trying to sell that show. Right. So it's... Um it's a sort of drama documentary. Yeah, it's about. I mean, they're, they're, it's a brilliant story, Joan and Jackie. They were two two young women in London. You know, terrible things happened to both of them at the hands of men. Joan, I mean, it's all been quite documented. Joan's been very open about it. Her first husband, ter- you know, terrible bloke, really. Um, but they both conquered in their own way the world, and they set a new standard for women. Jackie with her writing, and and Joan actually with some of her roles, etc. So it's a uh, it's a brilliant story. Who's playing the two women? Well, we haven't cast that yet. We're trying to sell it. We've got ideas, but I couldn't possibly tell you. No, but uh, it's funny you should mention Joan Collins because yep. um, she's actually sent a little... Joan has? Yeah, she sent a little question in. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's a little bit sort of uh, off the wall because uh, I've had a sneak preview, but perhaps we could have the question from Joan Collins, please. Hello, I'm Joan Collins, and I'm sitting here with Wayne Garvey, and I'm going to ask him this question. Wayne, do you dye your hair? Well, that was obviously in a busy restaurant, but she's actually saying, Wayne, do you dye your hair? So that, that was the River Cafe a few, oh, yeah. a few, last week, actually, when we were joined at one stage by Victoria Beckham and Scary Spice celebrating Scary's MBE. It was a very showbiz night. Really? So you, yeah. you do really rub shoulders no, with, not with really, great occasionally. Because... In fact, Joan Gatecrash, that did it, was with uh, Theo and Louise Fennell, I think. And uh, we, we often... We... <laughs> That's so terrible. We often, we often go out together, darling. No, but she's she's fantastic, Joan. She's great. Um, she she can have a right laugh at herself, actually. I think I can answer her questions. I'm sitting quite close to you. Yeah, Clearly, you we, don't you I don't, don't dye, dye your hair. hair. I wouldn't no, dye my hair. No, no. no. So, um, I don't know whether you wanted to separately address the mistake that you learnt for, learnt from. Oh yeah, from well, Anita Rani. Well, that's a good question, actually, because I. I do occasionally get rented out to do speeches at, you know, although I haven't had many for quite a few years. I don't know why. Oh, well, this podcast will help. This could help. This could could start my career again. And I do a thing about failure, right? And one of the, and I've always learned from failure in my career. And the biggest failure in my career, the biggest mistake, was I ruined the Krypton Factor. Really? Yeah. The Krypton Factor had run, this was a quiz on ITV that had run for like 20 years, I think. And uh, they wanted to update it. They wanted. ITV had a show called Gladiator at the time, and and the Krypton Factor was regarded as this rather staid and boring show, um, and couldn't we turn it into Gladiators? And for some reason, probably because there's no one else around, I got the job of producing it, and we made a complete and utter dog's dinner of it. It wasn't entirely my fault. There were lots of other people involved, including Andy Harris, who now runs Left Bank, because he was the exec producer, but it was a mess. And the show, as a result of this... I, t- I tell you what, is this... <laughs> Probably the worst morning of my life, in many ways, was the morning after the first episode of The New Krypton Factor had gone out. And I got to my desk at Granada about half eight in the morning. The switcher put a caller through, and it was a woman from somewhere in Greater Manchester. who said, is that the producer of The Krypton Factor? I went, yes, it is. She said, you have ruined our favourite show. And she ranted at me for a few minutes. And then, she said, and then there was noises in the background. And her husband took the phone off and said, yeah, I want to tell you, you've ruined our favourite show. And these calls carried on till about lunchtime. <laughs> After which I think probably that, you know. Stop pulling them through. But actually, so that was disastrous. But when I arrived at the BBC, the controller of BBC One said to me, you got a question of sport. That's run for 20 odd years at the time. This is the last series. We're going to scrap it. It's just not working anymore. And so I had one go at that, 
and we we completely transformed the show without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. That was the essential thing. We'd thrown everything out. We'd forgotten, we'd forgotten with the Krypton Factor what it was that the audience loved about it. And with Question of Sport, we kept what the audience loved about it and we did some polishing, we changed the set and again, that, that thing, we made it like a sports show actually. So we, we, we put the audience behind Sue Barker as it was and the contestants and everything. And um, Did you change the... Con- the captains? Yeah, I, oh no, I think we kept uh, Ali McCoy, who was a wonderful man. Unbelievably wonderful. And John Parrott were there at the time. And, oh, right, so and it's way few, before. Yeah, and a few years later we changed John. Letter captains. Because um, you've always got to refresh those shows. And put it this way, we saved it. But, I mean, they've tried to refresh it recently, I think, haven't they? And um, yeah, I haven't seen it. But... It's got another refresh, yeah. um, which is possibly one of those kind of big changes which has moved yeah. away from perhaps the spirit of the show uh, yeah i think you're probably right yeah oh thank you <laughs> so um in a minute we're going to come to the end of the, the podcast and ask that traditional closing is anyone still listening <laughs> i think they're tuning in more and more as word gets out <laughs> um but I, I would like to just touch on some things you do outside of work so i know mm-hmm. you're a keen you're keen supporter of um one charity in particular but tell us a little bit about your charitable work my charitable work, well, I don't, I don't, I sort of, um, I support War Chart because I think it's an, an astonishing charity. Um, I got involved with them because of Vanessa Kirby, who played Princess Margaret in The Crown, oh, yeah. who asked me to to come and meet them. And they're a, they're a very small charity based in London, and they do amazing work for children in war zones, basically. And 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 and. They're doing some amazing work in Afghanistan, particularly um, among young women, trying to keep education going and, and so on. And and the, the stuff they're doing in Yemen um, is, is terrific. They're, they're a brilliant company, and, and it's a pleasure to be associated with them and to try to do as much as I can to support them and spread their word of what, what they do. So it's traditional on the Dog and Bone podcast to end with the kind of fun question which uh, enables you to really sort of uh, dust down some wonderful story about previous part time in your career and amuse our audience. So um, what has been, Wayne, your most embarrassing moment in business? Well, this was probably the day that I had Richard Maidley inadvertently libel General Norman Schwarzkopf, the man who led the first Gulf War. Wow, the American general. Yes, yes. I was a producer on This Morning, which in itself could fill several uh, podcasts for hilarious anecdotes. And you would find yourself occasionally doing odd things with odd people. So so you, the, the celebrity booker said, Norman Schwarzkopf has got a book. He's, you know, it's before Christmas. Storming Norman. Storming Norman, that's what he's called. Yeah. And he's going to be in London. And he's available. What can we do? And I don't know why. But we decided a good thing would be Norman Schwarzkopf to review that year's kids' toys. <laughs> <laughs> and even more bizarre is that Stormy Norman agreed. So I think we filmed him at Hamleys or somewhere like that. But this more so that in itself is odd. Yes. But unfortunately, what used to happen on the I produced Fridays, you would have to write the on the Wednesday, you'd write the end bit for the Thursday show, which would be the teaser for your show. Right. And it's all about alliteration on those kind of scripts. And and for some reason, I couldn't get, I just couldn't work out what I wanted to say. And I had a PA who was typing it in as a, you know, and I said, um, oh God, I don't know. 
uh, mass murdering Norman Schwarzkopf tell us what kids toys to buy or something like that. It was just like that, you know. And at that moment, I kid you not, at that moment on the screen, the announcement that Charles and Di were going to get divorced came up, right? Wow. Now, as you can imagine, that's a big story for this morning. That it's certainly a, bigger than Norman Schwarzkopf doing kids. kids and yeah. so chaos ensued. And basically, no one checked. This, this woman, this PA had typed this in. It's not her fault, it's my fault for saying it, and hadn't taken it out. And it went into the auto queue. And Richard, while the show, you know, chaos at the end of a busy week on Friday, actually said, and mass murdering Norman's, I don't know what I'm saying here, and whatever. And that was probably, and he never mentioned it to me again because I don't think he quite realised what he had said. And this is the, in those days, we got one phone call. One journalist from Scotland rang up, our press officer, in the thing, I said, I think I've just heard Richard Madeley called Norman Schwarzkopf a massacre. To which he said, No, Richard would never say that. <laughs> well, and so it never got any further. You, I think that good, was a pretty good, low point, really. Yes, good job you didn't have the Pentagon sort of listening in and uh, saying, you know, Norman's coming over and he wants a little, little word with Richard. I, I, I don't know what toy he recommended either. I'm afraid. Action Man, probably. probably Action Man, uh, yeah. more from our generation. Listen, Wayne, it's been lovely as usual spending 45 minutes or so chatting away and uh, hearing some of your stories and anecdotes and uh, congratulations on uh, being one of my most successful university friends. I think you're in the top five. (laughs) Really? Who are the other four? (laughs) Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast and if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog. Thanks for joining us on The Dog...